welcome to Psychocinematic, the podcast where we analyse depictions of mental illness and disability in popular film and TV. I'm your host, Stephanie. Hi, and I'm Michael, Stephanie's husband. And also your own person. And my own person. <laughs> Increasingly less so these days. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you become parents. That's true. Uh, don't, don't do it. What's been we're, happening well, besides well, parenting? Well, well, we're in lockdown. We are. Again. When are we not? We have brief moments of sunshine, yeah. as Dan Andrews says. Although I, I don't remember what summer feels like, to mm. be honest with you. What have we been doing? We just what, we watched The Wicker Man the other night. Oh, yeah. What in, a great movie. Maybe in preparation for what we're talking about. Ooh. 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 We're also watching uh, Difficult People, which is my new favourite show. Mm. It's good. I really like it. And uh, especially not just the jokes, but the mum in it, the, her portrayal as a therapist is very, very funny. Yeah. Like the other episode we just watched where she's – surge pricing her clients at at difficult times like Christmas because it's high risk of suicide. So she's, (laughs) I just thought. You should do that. Oh, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) Other stuff that's been happening. I've got a new job. Well done. How's it going? Day two. It's day two. It's all over WebEx. I won't say anything identifiable, but it's a, a job helping to roll out some disability inclusion stuff in schools, uh, which I'm very excited about. And you have fig- have found out, I'll let you say. Mm, yeah, I found out I got my f- my first job for next year, my first doctor job. Yeah. So that's cool. Going to be exciting. saving lives. It's We're going to be very busy. Very busy. Very, very busy. Uh, what are we doing today? So this is a bit of a two- too far, two parter. So we're doing mental illness and disability in the films of Ari Aster, director of Hereditary and Midsummer. Yes. Tonight we'll be doing Hereditary. We should do Hereditary because it came first. It was yeah. his first movie, and I feel like it sets the tone. I know he's only done two movies, but I feel like we're gonna. There'll be more to come. In Ariaster's canon, yeah, that will be similarly of a theme. <laughs> yes, he's definitely an auteur with his things that he likes to do. Yes, um, and I think it's high time we do a horror film. Yes, um, because it's kind of the forgotten genre of film theory and criticism, and there's a very interesting relationship between disability and horror that 100%. you don't see in other. Genres of film. Absolutely. In most horror films, there's some element of otherness. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect word, yeah. Yeah. Um, and when, I, when starting this podcast, I had a lot of suggestions of horror films or um, like Halloween-ish sort of films. Mm. And it's like, oh, but which one do I do? And, of course, I choose the most indie horror film to start with. Yeah, well, it's part of this new crop of indie horror Yes. Slow horror, whatever you want to call it. Boutique horror. <laughs> Mumble horror. Mumble horror. <laughs> um, but I also, obviously horror isn't just horror. There's something underlying it. But I feel like Ari Aster's movies are very specifically also about mental illness as well. Um, and I want to subtitle this this series 
Ari asked her what happened to you because he's got some thoughts and some feelings. Yeah, something that he's working through via film. You tell us all about the plot because you are the articulate one. (laughs) So hereditary centers on the trauma and inevitable doom of the Graham family. We open on the funeral of the grandmother where conflicts and weirdness in the family are foreshadowed, particularly the unusual character of the grandmother, her strained relationship with the mother, Annie, played by Tony Collette, her bond with her granddaughter, Charlie, Millie Shapiro, and a host of extras unknown to the family but apparently significant to the grandmother. Mm-hmm. I will just draw the listener's attention to the fact that Millie Shapiro has clinocranial dysplasia, she has sort of dysmorphic... Unique. Yeah, features. Features, facial yeah. Features. Um, and I wouldn't normally draw your attention to that, but we're going to be talking about it. It's relevant to yeah. the plot and our analysis. True. After the funeral, the Grahams begin processing their grief. The son, Peter, played by Alex Wolf, copes by smoking weed and being a bit of a deadbeat. Annie attends a grief recovery group and expresses her ambivalence towards her mother and discloses her family's colourful psychiatric history, including diagnoses of various psychotic and dissociative disorders. And the father, Steve, played by Gabriel Byrne, tries in his aloof, distant way to hold things together. Only Charlie seems particularly moved by her grandmother's death and... We worry uh, about her emotional well-being when she beheads a dead pigeon. Yeah, and she just generally, it's a little odd. She's a bit, she has behaviour. We're also drip-fed some spooky details of something supernatural going on, like apparitions of the grandmother in the house, an occult-seeming book with a non-specific apology from grandma to Annie, and the desecration of the grandma's grave. Mm. So something's afoot. Things escalate dramatically with probably the most horrific death I've ever seen on screen. I still can't cope. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. So that's the death of Charlie, the daughter, who dies in a car accident while she's having a severe anaphylactic reaction to nuts, while Peter, the son, is at the wheel. Mm -hmm. So the processing of grief kind of ratchets up to... Eleven. A, a different level. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the most pertinent things for us to discuss plot-wise from here would be essentially the family's failure to manage their response to Charlie dying mm. um, and Peter's culpability and Annie's retreat into herself and her increasingly insensitive miniatures. Mm. I forgot to mention, actually, yeah, she's a miniature Artist. artist, yep. Um, so she's like a sculptor and she makes miniatures of scenes from her, her life. life. Yeah. Um, the house and the grandmother's funeral and things like that. And she has a, a show coming up, so she's under pressure. So the film would be a pretty robust kitchen sink drama, but Ari has other plans Ooh. which revolve, of course, around King Payman, a monarch of hell, who was invoked by Grandma and possessed Charlie at birth, but who needs a male body to kickstart his plans for world domination. (laughs) Obviously. So the implications of Grandma's conspiracy are felt when Annie meets Margot Martindale at a group. And Dowd. 
Not Margot Martindale, it's Anne Dowd. It's Margot Martindale. The other character actress who's amazing. Margot Martindale until proven otherwise. They made it a group. It's Anne Dowd. It was a joke. I got it. They meet at a grief recovery group and uh, Annie is persuaded to perform a seance and commune with the spirit of Charlie. Charlie slash Payman enters the house and wreaks havoc, culminating in the immolation of the father, the self decapitation of a possessed and levitating Annie and his taking of Peter in the final scene of the film. The viewer is left feeling as though their insides have been scalded with very hot water. (laughs) That is very accurate. (laughs) The most apt description. It is probably the most enthralling and horrible viewing experience I've ever had in my life. Yeah, it's intense. And we should note that the first time we saw this at the at the movies, Michael did not actually watch a lot of it because you had your beanie covering your eyes most yeah. of the time. So when we rewatched it for the podcast, there was a lot you hadn't seen. Yeah. This is, well... <laughs> and for good uh, reason you hadn't watched it. <laughs> I'm not a big horror guy, so that's my strategy to avoid jump scares mm. is the beanie over the eyes. But Highly you, recommend. And you avoid the, f- the film. Yes. So, yeah, I hadn't seen... Tony Collette up in the corner of the ceiling and floating around and yeah, stuff. I did watch her saw her head off. Did you actually watch that bit in the yeah, cinema? Yeah, I did. I was like, what's this? I think I covered my eyes at that yeah. point. I, can, what, I just can't handle the jumps. Yeah. Once it's established, I'm like there to watch. But I'm happy. I feel like Ari Aster isn't really a jump scared dude. He's more of a, oh, like the horror of what you're seeing sort of morph in front of your eyes rather than a boo. I respectfully disagree. Well, you're kind of fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of jump scares in this film. But I don't think he aims to make lots of jump scares. No. The film's about grief, Steph. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with lived experience. Um, and I don't just want to talk about lived experience, particularly with Ari, because he doesn't actually share a lot about his life, but we can just... He alludes to it. He's a bit of a, he's not a very forthcoming interviewee, is he? He's always sort of talking around topics, I find. Yeah, he talks around so many things. Mm, when always saying, I don't want to talk about this too much, but yeah. he is a little. But I found it interesting in a lot of the interviews I read, he's like, this is what I tried to do. And I hope it worked mm. <laughs> a lot of the time. And when I, when an interviewer was like, oh, that was like, that gave me this sense of blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, I hoped it did. Mm. So I feel like he's just like kind of fudging along a little bit. (laughs) Like, I'm going to do this thing and I hope people like it. Well, you did it, buddy. He did it. In terms of his lived experience, all I could really find is that in a lot of the interviews of when Hereditary came out in 2018, he wanted to convey the in his words, world-ending immensity of grief. And then the witches, the demons, and the beheadings followed his impulse to depict a family corroded by loss. So he he wanted to show the suffering. And then the horror kind of came from that. And another article was like he wanted to make a film that had sort of a, I don't know how to say this word, Ouroboros. Is that right? Yeah, is is it the serpent eating its tail? Yeah, eating its own tail. Um, About a family that's basically eating itself in its grief. Mm. So there's just like allusions to that he's experienced a lot of grief and he's been in a family situation where that's what it's like because watching the performances on film, it feels very real. 
And my experience with grief isn't as close as what they've experienced, but I can imagine that would be what it's like. Yeah. Just the little details, the little differences. The little details. The little differences. um, Make it seem like, yeah, he probably does have lived experience. But I think we're letting him off the hook a little bit because I think we've um, been a little bit more stringent about the lived experience. Oh, I'm not, I'm not giving him any points. <laughs> Sorry, Ari. <laughs> I'm not giving him any points. Yeah, no, we need the receipts. Yeah, mm. where's the receipts, mate? Like, if you're going to make a r- super powerful film about grief, then, like, smash the stigma and tell us about your grief. Uh, he might not be ready, though. He's and young. that's okay. He's young. Is he? How old is he? Like, my age. So young. Can we talk a little bit about Millie Shapiro? Yeah. Um, so she is, she's actually started off in Broadway. Um, she has like a sister, uh, who also, and her mum also has the cranial dysplasia. Not mm. that that means anything, but her and her sister were in a singing group for a lot of their youth. And she was Matilda in the Broadway production of Matilda. Really? And she won, won a Tony. Oh, good job. Mel. I haven't actually seen it, but that was, uh, written by one of our Tim Minchin. Oh. What a little Aussie. So, yeah, she's got a really uh, strong performance background. But I was curious, and so are you, about what drew Ariasta to casting her as Charlie. Um, because I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that she has the cladocranial dysplasia. Um, also important to note that Dustin from Strange Things has the same condition. And a reason, the reason why I'm asking this is because... There's a bit of a trope in Hollywood of people with disabilities being cast because of their disability. And it's a bit of a shit trope, really. I guess there's kind of a spectrum of like a diversity hire. Yes. You know, through to what you probably see more commonly in a horror movie when people are hired based on they look quote unquote scary. Yes, which can be very exploitative, which possibly. is exploitative. <laughs> yeah, um, 100%. But um, so Ari kind of says, you know, her presence when she was, when they were casting and that she wanted to be super creepy. So I think he's trying to make the case that mm. maybe he doesn't see disability. <laughs> well, he didn't say that, so we can't put those words no. in his mouth. But like you said, he has lots of praise for her and... Like, he called her intelligent and mature. So hopefully he employed her based on her merits. Um, And she is excellent in the film. But uh, in terms of her lived experience, she's a huge advocate against bullying and has a no-to-bullying campaign. So I assume that means she's probably experienced a fair bit of bullying in her life. Mm. And given that kids are pretty fucking cruel, probably. But that's all I could really find on her lived experience. Pretty sure she hasn't been possessed by payment, from what I can tell. What about Tony? I have to say, I love Tony Collette more than most actors. She's very good. I mean... Oh, here we go. <laughs> if I had to fault this movie, and everybody oh, loves her performance... What are you going to say? I just think it's a touch overdone. Oh, I knew you were going to say because that. Because it is. But she's supposed to... Okay, she's supposed to be seen as this hysterical woman who's lost touch with reality. So you question, is it a demon possession or is it just a mom who's lost it? So she's supposed to be unhinged. She's going through the most insane grief that you could ever experience. 
uh, and it only increases. So I don't know how she could have dulled it down. Like I think she, she needed that level of intensity. Once Charlie dies, she like started the scene at 110%. But she goes higher. She doesn't, and it just doesn't <laughs> relent. And I just think it needed just a little bit more light, light and shade. Light and shade, You know Tony. what, though? I don't think Take this film me. was supposed to be light and shade. I think it was supposed to make you feel like horrible the whole way through. Yeah. And it did. It did. <laughs> but obviously she's Tony's got a very wide and varied career and loves to play characters with varied mental health issues. And she seems like in the articles I read, she seems very in tune with mental health. And all, But all I could find in terms of lived experience, which isn't nothing, is um, in her 20s when she started to get famous, she struggled with being in the media spotlight and experienced bulimia and panic attacks. So... Yeah. Yeah, of, it's pretty serious. Yeah, it's pretty serious. Yeah, mm. it's it's pretty awful experiencing both those things. So there you go. Mm. And what about perennial boomer father Gabriel <laughs> Burns? Well, interestingly, didn't find much apart from the fact, and I think this was on his Wikipedia page. He spoke in January 2011 about being sexually abused by priests during his childhood. Oh, fuck. So that's really fucked up. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, and apparently he was going to become a priest himself. That might have stopped him. Yeah, that's really horrific. Yeah. Couldn't find much on Alex Wolf apart from the fact that he thinks that he has PTSD from making this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Which does I wouldn't. That count? <laughs> well, it's after the fact. But also, I completely understand why you would have PTSD from making this movie. Yeah. Um, and apparently, sounds like Ari is a bit of a, a Stanley Kubrick um. in terms of that he intentionally like wanted people to not have that release of emotion throughout the film. So he wanted Peter to feel moody and fragile the entire time. So he wasn't allowed to like cry, and that would probably fuck you up a little bit. Yeah, you should just trust your actors to act instead of. You know what, though? Abusing them. It worked. <laughs> it worked. He does, he does a really good job. Yeah. Um, but Alex Wolf. But, you know, yeah, it's, it's, you have a duty of care to your actors. Accuracy? Well, in terms of accuracy, I think we could both agree that there's not, I don't think we should go through specific diagnoses in this section because we don't really, we have some of characters that aren't on screen but sort of more the experiences that we see, including the grief, uh, the trauma, and some of that family dynamic that I that we often come across in life. But maybe we should start with Charlie, the daughter. Rather than the accuracy of anything, just the way... Just her state. Her state, yeah. Like the movie portrays this young girl who's a, you know, a bit atypical looking. She's got some interesting behaviours, like you said. She does that mouth click. Was that a good one? That um, was more drag queen than hereditary. I oh, <laughs> she's dressed, she's got quite straggly hair. She she has a look that suggests she doesn't really look after herself that well. Um, she's got an allergy to nuts. Uh, she has, makes some really strange looking pictures and sculptures, and she she just has that really flat effect and doesn't really interact very much with people. To me, there's a bit of a allusion to maybe some sort of intellectual or cognitive disability or neurological condition like autism, just the way she behaves. 
Um, but also she has a demon inside her. <laughs> well, yeah, I, uh, I was interested in, in your take on Charlie because, you know, you're a specialist in kids and their mm. emotions and behaviours. Do you think that the way she behaves, you know, I'm really thinking specifically of cutting the pigeon's head off, mm. um, is that I remember you talking once about, like, green, orange and red light type behaviour. Oh, yes. That's more around <laughs> sexual behaviour, but definitely. But, I mean, is that within the realms of normal, if a little bit weird behaviour, or is that, like, a serious problem that you'd be worried about? I think it would have to be explored. Like, given that her grandmother just died and she was quite close to her grandmother and seems to be the only person who's sad about it, she might be going through, like, some disenfranchised grief where she's grieving but she's not really... I think Annie tries to give her the space to grieve but she's not really given the modelling of grief because no one in their family seems to really give too much of a shit. They're more relieved. Mm. So if she's not, she doesn't really know how to grieve, it might be a way of her processing that, Mm. processing death. And it's an odd behaviour and it would be very shocking. But yeah, the the bird's already dead. So like it's it's very, (laughs) it'd be very... uh, It's not very hygienic. But I think that's definitely something that should be explored with her. But she has these very private rituals that no one seems to even notice anyway. Um, Like no one goes, hey, why? What's with these drawings, Charlie? Yeah. Um, So, you know, it could indicate something a bit more pathological, but it also could be a way of processing grief for Mm. her that works for her. And apart from it being a bit unsanitary that could you know it could she could just be pushed to trying different other ways to explore that grief but it's in a context of lots of other weird things that she does yeah I mean I think something that we should address is that I think Ari Aster has said this movie is about grief yes you know it's not about demons and kings of hell and no whatever so I actually, I think that reading of uh, she's struggling to deal with her grief in the context of a family that is pretty emotionally locked down. Yep. Um, I actually really like that reading. I think it makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Are you a psychologist? I have some credentials. <laughs> there are some other things though that like she seems to not be affected by cold or heat and that seems to be something that Annie pulls her up on a lot. Like... Um, don't sleep in the creepy tree house. Creepy tree house because you could catch a cold, and she doesn't seem to be bothered by that. So I wonder if there is something that means she can't regulate her temperature. Annie and um, Steve, the parents, it's like a parent trope. Mm. They're really concerned about her being cold, and they're really concerned about shoes off in the house. Yes, um, and I think that that's a way of them showing. People who have no skills to demonstrate compassion for their kids in any other way but to be like, are you cold? (laughs) Take your shoes off, (laughs) you know? You're hungry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you Uh, want to talk about her raging anaphylaxis? Yeah. I read an article. There's so many articles that explain this movie very in-depthly and there's some that I just don't understand. (laughs) Like, Mm. There's this one by The Establishment. And it talks about the familial body and how horror films talk about the experience of being a physical person. And it talks about Cronenberg and um, 
I just mm. couldn't understand. It's too, it's too uh, intellectual for me. But um, this one article I read says that. The anaphylactic reaction is the first form of foreshadowing and displays the character's limitations in establishing dominion over their bodies. This is further exemplified in the film through experiences of unplanned pregnancy, sleepwalking, schizophrenia, and demonic possession. Asta depicts food allergies in a realistic manner while uniquely layering themes driving the storyline and developing character arcs. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a food allergy. <laughs> it's an accurate depiction of anaphylaxis. It is. More accurate than seen in Hitch, for example. <laughs> Broad City? Yeah, because we were talking about this, about how films usually play anaphylaxis for, ga- for laughs and gavs. Gaffs and spoofs and goofs. Spoofs and goofs, yeah. But this and is definitely pranks. there are no spoofs and goofs. No. Oh, um, Parasite. Yeah, yeah like I was going to say ones. Parasite. Yeah. And it's always like, you had, you had nuts and you're not supposed to have nuts. Oh, you're going to be a bit sick. But it can kill you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, completely. And, you know, when Will Smith's face is all swelled up in, in, in Hitch... Like, his throat's probably swollen up, He's, too. He probably can't he breathe. He might die. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I read on the Royal Children's Hospital website in Melbourne, Charlie should have had her dang EpiPen with her. That was the other thing. There's some multiple points in the film where she doesn't have her EpiPen with her. Yeah. Like, at the funeral, her mum's like, oh, I don't have the EpiPen. Why not? Yeah. Come on, Annie. Come on. But maybe that is saying, trying to point fingers at Annie at being a bad parent. Mm. That's kind of bad parenting. It is. <laughs> Let's talk about Annie a little bit more mm-hmm. on that note. Mm-hmm. So it seems like her family history is quite, she talks about in that um, support group meeting that her mother had dissociative identity disorder and dementia. Her father had psychotic dementia and starved himself to death. And her older brother had schizophrenia and suicided. And his, he claimed that his mum was putting people inside of him. You know, we we later find out that that was probably true, mm. <laughs> and um, the the mother's dissociative identity disorder, which was probably around her being a witch, she was actually a witch. So it's kind of interesting the way that is depicted as actually not mental illness and more a fact, a fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And it sounds like the the Annie's mother was trying to put payment into as many male people as she could that might have caused them to be quite distressed. But I guess on top of that, in terms of Annie, is it sounds like the uh, it came up a lot in the film that Annie had that fear of quote unquote losing her in mind and it seems like everyone else in the family was having that fear as well as Annie becomes more and more distressed by what's happening around her is oh she's just like her mother yeah um and in some ways that that sort of speaks to a very true accurate fear that people have with that inherited mental illness yeah totally she's living in the shadow of her family's psychiatric history Um, and that kind of casts doubt on anything she might do or say because people can always say to her oh well this is this is the first sign you're yeah you're you're also experiencing psychosis or whatever yeah but it also sounds like her relationship with her mother um suggests that there was a very narcissistic parenting dynamic 
in that her mum just wanted what she wanted for her daughter. Obviously, she wanted her daughter to give birth to Payman. But that aside, Annie talks about her, like, going no contact with her for a while and and then having her back in her life and that causing problems but feeling like she had an obligation to have her mum live with them while she was going through dementia. So it also suggests that quite accurate in many families where a parent is a very narcissistic parent and you just need to cut them off in order to live your life but sometimes you feel compelled to bring them back in because they're your mum and you love them. Yeah. Um, she talks about the guilt that she feels around everything to do with her mum. Yeah. And feeling that she failed, like she needed to protect her children from her mum and then that she maybe failed them mm. because she couldn't. If you want to protect your kids from your mum, you don't let your mum breastfeed your kids. <laughs> That's how demonic possession happens. Yeah. Um, I I am really interested in the way that Annie conceives of her family's problems as mental illness, mm. whereas we, the viewer, is like we're, we're like that's not mental illness, that's payment. Yeah, it's payment. Um, yeah, and uh, I like that mental illness and supernatural things. There is a sort of an intersection. You like that? Well, it's just interesting that we. As health professionals, allied or whatever, health, yeah, yeah, label these experiences mental illness. Mm. Whereas in different cultures and things, possession is mm -hmm. is kind of a normal experience, or it, it's it's not considered it, illness. It's something. It's that part happens. of it's part of their cultural yeah narrative. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I went on a bit of a rabbit hole. Would you like to hear about my rabbit hole? I want to hear about the rabbit hole. So I was reading about dissociative identity disorder, mm -hmm. which used to be known as multiple personality disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and there's an interesting link um, between DID and the satanic panic, <gasps> which I know is your favourite thing. <laughs> no, it's actually Sarah Marsh's, Marsh? Yeah, her favourite thing, okay. who is the host of my favourite podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong about it's it's a it's a it's an uncommon disorder, but we know that it's linked to serious trauma. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of a maladaptive coping response to really major, yeah, abuse, war, illness, like surgery, things like that yeah. in childhood. Um, we talked about it a little bit in a ratchet episode, didn't we? Yeah, because there was that weird cockamamie multiple personality <laughs> arc. but so the whole satanic panic thing which was this idea in sort of the 80s and 90s mm. that there was this epidemic of satanic ritual abuse. abuse and murder of children that had been that was intergenerational had been going on for 2000 years um and yeah was fucked like <laughs> Sounds like, but it was all bullshit, right? Mm. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It but wasn't in a, in happening. A it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't real, but people thought this was happening. And this group of psychiatrists heard about satanic panic, and then they were like, "That's why all these people have dissociative identity disorder because they went through these rituals." Oh my god! And so there was a massive spike in diagnosis of dissociative identity disorder of the order of thousands, tens of thousands more cases in the 80s and 90s, mm. there was, like, less than 100 
in the years leading up to that, and then it went up to like twenty or forty thousand or something. It was insane. Anyway, what I what how this comes back to hereditary? <laughs> I want to know though what was actually going on. I think it was kind of that you can hysteria? really criticize criticize the DSM. Well, somebody referred to it, uh, and I don't have my citation for this, but somebody referred to it as making people where the psychiatrist had this idea like so many people are affected by these satanic rituals and then they go looking yes, for that yeah, yeah. instead of – I guess it's like a confirmation bias yeah. where if you're looking for satanic abuse causing multiple personalities, you find it. Yeah. On that note, definitely listen to You're Wrong About because they talk <laughs> about this a lot. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's an episode on um, Michelle Remembers, which is a book that came out – by this uh, lady Michelle who believed she was a who was led to believe that she was a victim of satanic ritual abuse by her psychiatrist who then went on and they got married and oh. made this book together so it's so so sus Jeez. and it is so interesting they do a deep book deep dive and they go through it yeah. it's just so interesting how that abuse of power can turn up and end up believing these absolutely impossible things have mm. happened. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, Richard Knoll is a psychiatrist who was who kind of frames himself as one of the early sceptics of – he might be a psychologist, actually. Anyway, he has an article called Speak Memory, which we'll put in the links, that, oh, that kind of summarises the psychiatric side of things. But anyway, why it comes back to hereditary. Yes, I just find it really interesting that she, that the grandmother was given this diagnosis, dissociative identity disorder, and she's also undoubtedly involved in a satanic ritual. Yeah. And I don't know if Ariasta was going for this, but it really, it really, it's just, we know now that satanic panic was bullshit, but Ariasta might be saying, oh, maybe, maybe mental maybe illness is not. bullshit. Maybe yeah. it's really Satan. Um, and... Yeah, it also sort of links into what we were talking about a little bit before where psychiatry, the relationship between psychiatry and the supernatural. Yeah. And some people say that psychiatry was trying to label possession, mm. a potentially normal cultural experience, as an illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's that medical model coming in mm. which had its place in terms of we're pretty sure people aren't being possessed when they have mental illnesses. You know, we live in this society that says that's not true. <laughs> and and people with mental illness would be very offended if we thought that was true, um, including ourselves. But also, you know, we're still in that medical model. What's the next step? This is what we've used to cope with these things that happen. And that's just the, the narrative we give it and that's how we treat it. But... Maybe the next step is, I guess the next step with disability is a social model where it's the society that needs to change to fit in with these complexities of the human experience. It, whatever you call it is whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't mean it needs to be eradicated or got rid of, which is yeah. kind of the, medi the, yeah, the medical model. Yeah, it shouldn't necessarily be pathologised or devalued. Mm. Exactly. And I just find that fascinating. And I really like trying to undermine the DSM. Not that I particularly oh, I hate it. I just, <laughs> I just find it really interesting, you know, because it's such a – it's like the Bible. But it, it 
the early versions of it are terrible. Mm. So, and it still exists and it's still flawed, extremely yeah. flawed. I have like, many problems with it. Dissociative identity disorder used to be called like hysterical period woman disease <laughs> or something. <laughs> but that, yeah, so that's my rabbit hole. We're out of, we, we've come through the rabbit hole. We're on the other side. Should we talk about. Now we're back in hereditary world. Oh God. <laughs> Should we talk about, we've talked about grief a little bit, but it's definitely. Let's tie up some loose ends with grief though. A mental issue in this film. Grief is the big one. And to be clear, grief is a normal expected response to significant loss yes um but grief is pretty major in this film so let's talk about it yeah so I, i think we should draw that distinction more forcefully because there is this idea in the dsm of grief as a disorder which, prolonged grief or um it's called persistent complex bereavement disorder mm-hmm. and it's in like the this isn't an illness but maybe it's something we should research in the future section of the DSM, uh-huh. but based on their sort of speculated criteria, nobody meets the criteria for it okay. because they all die <laughs> before a, so, a year can elapse. <laughs> or two weeks even. No, it's a year. Okay. <laughs> so King Payman cured them of their um, persistent complex bereavement disorders. I was going to say they would all have adjustment disorder though, which I think is two weeks. I, well, I didn't think you – adjustment disorder is always – Everyone like, gets diagnosed with adjustment ev- disorder. Every, every movie has somebody with disorder. adjustment disorder yeah. in it. Like Who Frodo doesn't? Baggins has adjustment disorder when he cries <laughs> um, in the mind. Frodo Baggins has a lot of issues. Anyway, um, but in terms of grief, I think there's obviously a, a good differentiation in the film of complex grief versus uncomplex grief. Like, and his mum dying – like she's saying, you know, should I be sadder? Which her husband and son are also like, eh. Um, so that complex grief is more that grief when you've got mixed feelings and it's not as simple as, not that uncomplex grief isn't easy, but um, there's a lot of other emotions that come into it, like guilt or relief, um, feeling a sense of blame for the person dying or not making amends and it can be very difficult to work through and come out in lots of different ways and it's interesting that she goes to the grief counseling even though she's like probably more relieved that her mom has left because she kind of recognizes that this is still something I need to work through Mm. it's a very adaptive response for her to go to grief grief counseling even though she wasn't someone she necessarily had a good relationship with yeah, I think she says that she went to a, a grief group for one of the prior deaths yeah. as well. And it's interesting that once Charlie dies, she rocks up to the grief place but she and can't she's go just in. about to leave. Yeah. But Margot Martindale has other plans for her. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's the d- important distinction that when her daughter dies, you see that huge emotional moment which you said was like labor or maybe i said it was like labor i think it's like labor yeah just the way the scene um there's this really low angle shot of her on the floor fours with the husband sort of behind her and it kind of looks she looks like she's bearing down she's yeah which i think just in terms of midsummer as well i think i think that that's something that ari 
Asta wants yeah. to say that grief is like a birthing process. Yeah, a rebirthing. Mm. Mm. Because I feel like a lot of people would say, you know, there's grief, uh, there's life before and after the event. Mm. So it is like a rebirthing because, you, you know, gr- you're never the same mm. when you're going through grief. You're, you're forever changed because the, the world is forever different. Mm. So that makes sense. Yeah. And a lot of her other just behaviours, you can just see how much she's grieving, like sleeping at her daughter's tree house and um, not being able to be touched, not being able to sleep. No one's allowed to talk about it, which is a very different experience from when her grandmother dies. It's like no one wants to talk about it. And it seems like she's maybe processing it through her art as well because she starts painting scenes of when Charlie died, like the... Yeah, um, the miniatures, I mean, the very first shot of the film is of a miniature of their house and then we slowly zoom in and the boundaries sort of blurred and we're in their real house. Yeah. Um, And you can also see there's another sculpture that she's done. It's a little bit more fanciful, I guess, the one with the house and there's two houses underground beneath oh, it, yeah. near the staircase. Mm. But then the miniatures that she starts making, the ones that you see her making in the film are much more just scenes from her life. Yeah. Because she makes the funeral home where the grandmother's funeral happens. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, she makes the scene of Charlie's accident yeah. complete with a little bloody head. Yeah. And that causes tension and it just shows that, that sort of... Um, and just, just like Charlie cutting off the pigeon's head, we would, you know, we see that as quote-unquote wrong way to process the grief. And, her, and Annie's husband, watching her recreate the scene of Charlie's death, he feels that that's a wrong way to process the grief because he's, he's absolutely distressed and distraught by it. I mean, it's his daughter too, so that makes sense, but it's like she's rejecting, he's rejecting her way of processing that grief as well. Yes, but I think it's also a really insensitive thing to do. And I think it shows that she's she's just in her own world and she's yeah. not she's not, she's connected not aware to others. of the feelings of the rest of the family. Very good point, yeah. I feel like everyone sort of has to let Annie go through it and put themselves aside. Mm. And it's only... We talk about this later, but it's only that moment with um, the husband Steve when he's in the car and he's driving that he lets himself cry for a bit. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, they're all they're all struggling to yeah. to let things out. It's um, all coming out in bad ways. Yeah, and also it's it's like Annie has to take up all the space so they don't have much space to process it themselves. Yeah, um, I, I remember we. I was talking to a grief counsellor or something once and she was talking about when a when a family goes through grief, everybody's grief is sort of an up and down process where you have a good day or a good hour or two and then you have, you know, crushing sadness sort of thing. And when you've got three people in a household who are all doing that, you get somebody having a good day and somebody having a bad day at the same time mm. and that's just a recipe for conflict yes because you know the happy person feels that the other person is just trying to bring them down yeah and wallow in it whereas the sad person's like how can you possibly be feeling good right now validate my feelings both of them so it's a really it's a really complex and um difficult Mm. situation to manage ptsd 
Yes. Um, def- I reckon... I, I want to talk about that too. Yeah. They're all going, they all hit the DSM criteria for PTSD. Particularly Peter, I feel. I mean, obviously. So the P, the DSM criteria Go. for trauma specify that you either sort of witness trauma or you hear about a loved one dying accidentally or violently. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously Peter, as the driver of the vehicle that Charlie died in, is a witness, and everybody else has heard about their, you know, Peter and Annie have heard about their daughter dying violently. They would have seen her body, though. Yes. I forgot about that. Yeah, Annie sees her. Yeah, okay. So they're all obviously traumatised. I would have said that if, if anybody's PTSD is really being explored in the movie, it's Annie's, because I feel that the flashbacks and dreams mm. and stuff that you see through the movie, I mean, as some examples, we occasionally hear Charlie's um, and there's very vivid dream sequences like Annie seeing Peter covered in ants the way mm. she sees Charlie's head. So I think that if you're gonna, if we were going to do an old school DSM criteria by criteria, criterion by criterion, I think Annie, like, most clearly hits it. Apart from the fact we're not sure what's real and what's not in this movie, but yes. Yeah, that's that's true. And what's, like, a spirit versus a, a dream. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think I'm, in, I'm interested in the sleepwalking stuff because that was happening before any of this happened. Um, and the fact that she very casually is like, yeah, apparently I got some paint thinner and threw it over my kids and when I woke up I had a match. Like, mm. I didn't mean to. Mm. Uh, that's so traumatising. Yeah. Um, how accurate is that to happen? And is that a symptom of something or is that just a parasomnia that she's yeah. experiencing? Yeah, I had a look through the DSM criteria and that's a pretty clear-cut case of payment possession. <laughs> Uh, I don't know much you about You got your payment possession right there. <laughs> it's a bit too I guess I don't know, really. Yeah. If but if I had to, if someone put a gun to my head and told me to express an opinion. You'd say payment. I would say it's too filmy yeah. to be real. I don't um, I feel like people do lots of interesting things when they sleepwalk. Um I mean mostly it's just peeing. <laughs> and walking. <laughs> and walking. And saying weird things. Yeah. But um, you know, people have who took that still knocks would go for drives. Mm. But that's under the influence of oh, a medication. Mm. I, and and also like payment in the movie seems, I don't quite understand the story fully of what payment can do, but it seems like towards the end he's able to kind of flit in and out of different bodies because yeah. he sort of makes Peter smash his face on the yeah, desk and yep. he makes... Uh, Annie float around, so maybe there's some early um, possession. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I, before we sort of move on from Annie, it's interesting how how she's so excited about the séance as well. Mm. Um, when you go through the stages of grief, uh, one of the stages is denial. So it's almost like, and the stages of grief, by the way, are denial, blame, bargaining depression and then acceptance but 
traditionally they sort of give you this is this this is the stages you go through at this time but they kind of go everywhere um and I feel like her getting excited about the seance is sort of that denial like oh we can bring her back we she we can or bargaining perhaps you know we can bring her back home and then maybe she can stay or something like that and she gets so um fixated and gets everyone involved in it to the point of disturbing everybody else. Hmm. Um, I think that's kind of an accurate portrayal of like, if you could get, bring someone back, oh yeah, she will try, yeah. which is how they get her and bring payment into the house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting exploration of grief in, in sort of the, a way only a film can do is to be like, if you could do this, would you? Mm. Um, Probs wouldn't, though. I don't really want the ghost of anyone in my house, even if I love them. Yeah. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> um, the other thing that's cool about that scene is is just the vibes you get from um, Peter and Steve mm. when they're, they're kind of just letting Annie do whatever she needs to do. Yeah. And even though they're totally not buying into it, and obviously until shit hits the fan. But then they're, they're just completely disturbed by it and want it to stop. Yeah, and um, I just remember Peter really freaks out in that scene and, mm. and starts crying and then Steve's like, Annie, Cut the shit, Annie. Annie's like, oh, Fucking shut up, Annie. It almost makes you wish that there was no supernatural stuff going on in the film, hey? Well, originally he wrote the film without the supernatural stuff. Really? Yeah, but then it would have been definitely a mumblecore film. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have worked. Yeah. Um, but then it would have just made you think, oh, Annie's just an hysterical mum. Yeah. But no, actually, she's correct the whole time. I just want to finalize the accuracy section on some of that family dynamic stuff because I think there's some real attachment issues between Annie and Peter. Um, the film does not beat around the bush in showing that. Like, you know, they're at the dinner table and all in an experience of grief. Peter's obviously blaming himself as anyone would and Annie is obviously upset with him and taking everything out on him, which is just not something you should do to your son. I think if you're feeling that raw, though, it would be really hard to regulate your feelings of blame. It would be really hard, but if if you're able to get outside of your head for one second, you would just have to have some space, I think, rather than let yourself have a go at your son. Um, and she's a bit manipulative in, in some ways. Like how? Um, there's just prior to, prior to everything going down, when they go to the, when he says, Hey mom, can I borrow the car? I want to go to a party. She's like, Oh no, just really, Oh, you're not going to eat with us. And then he's like, yeah, well, and she's like, I don't care. I just want to know. Like she kind of, she guilts him into having dinner with them dinner yeah. and taking Charlie to the party that, and yeah. ultimately kills her. Exactly. And, like, I'm sorry, but I guess she's 13. Charlie's about 13. I think so. What 13-year-old, A, wants to go to a older teen's party and, B, should be going to a party, yeah. which obviously is going to have drugs and alcohol. Mm. Um, it's just weird that she made her go. We, obviously, we needed to for plot development. But... <laughs> But the fact that she guilts him into doing it is just like a, a, an early hint that they have a really st 
weird attachment because he feels like he has to do what mum says even though it doesn't make any sense and she just like why does she want Charlie to go anyway yeah isn't it more she just wants the kids gone yeah but like no, she just does it in such a manipulative way to me that I, that was my first hint that their their relationship is a bit odd. Yeah, and from a narrative perspective, it's almost her fatal flaw. Yes, because that that weird, you know, potentially insignificant interaction is the the thing that the thing gets that the story leads happened, everything really. happening. Yeah, if he could have said, "Oh, mum, no, she, it's not appropriate for her," or if she was like. Um, yeah, do what you want, then none of this would have happened. Yeah. Um, but I think, like, the backstory of the fact that when Peter was born, um, she tried very hard to have her mum not have anything to do with him, and it sounds like she was successful at that. But also she didn't want him in the, f- like, that that um, dream sequence of where she admits that she, she didn't want to be a mother mm. in the first place. She said mum pressured her and then she tried to stop it because she tried to have a miscarriage. So even in the beginning of their relationship, there was just some stuff that maybe would make it more likely that their attachment isn't secure Yeah, because she's obviously still working on those feelings of the fact, the guilt and the blame that she has for herself because she didn't really want to be pregnant with Peter in the first place. Mm. Um, But she also... She says she was trying to protect him, which is why she wanted to try and have a miscarriage because maybe secretly in her, in her somewhere deep down in her subconscious, she knew that her mum wanted to turn him into payment. <laughs> but taking that aside, even the way that, you know, when she talks about the fact that she did, he woke up to find her sleepwalking, them covered in paint thinner with a, lighting a match. Mm. When she talks about that to Margot Martindale slash Anne Dowd, she's like, oh, he still hasn't forgiven me for, for it. Like, I wasn't going to do it. Um, I can't convince him that I was just sleepwalking. Not really acknowledging how traumatic that would have been for him. Like, mm. she seems a very invalidating, just annoyed parent. Yeah. I, I, I have a few things to say. I guess on that... I, I, when I think about this movie, I do always come back to that miniature of the, mm. the new house on top of the buried older houses. Mm. And I think that that's a really neat metaphor for the family dynamic stuff that Ari Aster is trying to get at, where it's like you try and make your own life mm. your own way, but at the end of the day you're always building on the foundation of what your parents laid out for you and th- those are those crumbly buried yeah. houses. Yeah. And even though Annie, she's not perfect, I think she's a sympathetic character though. Oh, 100%. Um, she just has these issues which I think you could very comfortably draw back to the grandmother mm. being unwell. Yeah. Um, and and so obviously, sounds kind of unpleasant. <laughs> well, obviously Annie's attachment with her mother was very strained. Yeah. Um, and created a lot of issues, not just for Annie, but for other members of her family. Um, it's a good allegory for when you don't want to make the same mistakes that your parent made. Uh, if you have a disrupted attachment with your parent, you want to have a secure attachment with your child. But because that is your attachment base and that's, that's what you've modelled off is your own attachment. That's your foundation, like you said, for how to be a parent. So 
it's it's not as easy as just saying I'm going to have a secure attachment with my child it takes a lot of work and effort and without keeping your stuff and managing your stuff you can inadvertently repeat the same mistakes and there's a lot of self-blame and of course your kids love to blame you for it too mm. but sometimes it's you you do the best you can with the resources that you have and sometimes you don't have many resources mm. um so yeah it's kind of a little bit of that in a nutshell where she tried to protect her kids but she couldn't heavy let's talk about stereotypes i mean i think the main thing that we want to talk about is the disability and the mental illness okay. stereotype yeah yeah let's start with disability yeah Firstly, I think it's quite a stereotype where, you know, looking at the trailer, looking at the um, poster for the film, we assume that it's about Charlie being a creepy kid. Yes. But she dies pretty soon in the beginning of the film, so it's not really about her being a creepy kid. Yeah. <laughs> the, the posters, I just remember seeing on, on Netflix that the, you know, the thumbnail or whatever for the movie is a picture of her yeah and it makes you think that oh there's she's gonna kill everyone who's gonna murder everyone yeah and i mean in some way she does but she's it's not her it's payment well okay so so i guess there's a few problems yes there's one the the use of millie shapiro's appearance Mm -hmm. uh to signify horror Mm -hmm. um there's the implication that the disability of the character Charlie is a result of demonic possession mm-hmm. as opposed to just a quirk of genetics mm-hmm. causing a morally neutral <laughs> change in appearance. <laughs> um, and, and then kind of the tropes of horror and storytelling that viewers kind of expect and that are intrinsically ableist. Yes. Well said. Next section. <laughs> no, let's... No, t- talk about some of the stuff that you found about disability as horror. Well, I, I found a lot of talk... There's a lot of theory on horror mm. um, and horror film in particular... But I, I guess if you wanted to distill it into one tiny, into a nutshell, it would be that a horror film introduces a monster that disrupts normality, mm. and the monster uh, needs to either be destroyed or somehow assimilated in a way that returns normality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like Bride of Frankenstein, the monster brings the tower down on Frankenstein and his bride and this allows the heterosexual couple to get married somehow. <laughs> I haven't like, seen that movie. I, I, I haven't seen it either. I was just <laughs> reading about it. But it's, yeah, a monster appears, we destroy it, everything's good. Um, and Beauty killed the beast. The, very often the the quote unquote monster is can very easily be read as disability. Mm. I think in this movie it's actually grief. Yeah. Objectively like just without that. Yeah, it no, looks I, like in the film that it's this um girl with the disability. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right actually. But it's a trope. It's a trope. It's a trope um, that he employs. Um, One interesting trope that I came across that this absolutely uses is the changeling trope 
it's a trope where, um, and there's an article all about this that I'll link to in terms of hereditary. Um, it's a trope where it's, it was like in mid- medieval literature and folklore, where a fairy would kidnap a human baby and replace it with its own offspring, leaving the human mother to raise a strange but seemingly human creature. So those kind of tropes um, sort of speak to a lot of maternal anxieties of the time, which is if a child suffered a physical deformity or developmental abnormality, maybe it was actually a fairy. Or if a mother experienced um, some difficulty bonding with their child because of some postpartum depression, maybe it was a fairy. (laughs) Um, So it's a really (laughs) offensive story where it quite dehumanises the infant and also suggests that, you know, a baby that doesn't fit all the normal boxes is something that couldn't be human and couldn't possibly be uh, just just happy to exist and have a good bond or have a be worthy of love because it must be superhuman and not human at all. Yeah. So um, there's a few articles that suggest that sort of fits that trope because it turns out that Charlie is actually a conduit for payment. Yeah. So basically a fairy. Yeah. <laughs> um. I guess, yeah, it all boils down to being very othering. Yes, you know, hugely the, the othering. person with a disability, there's something supernatural going yeah. on. and which is basically what happens in this film. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, in the classroom when a pigeon flies through the window and dies right where Charlie is, mm. it sort of alludes to the fact that she has supernatural powers mm. because she's a fairy. it was interesting hearing what millie shapiro actually thought of her character though pre and post it coming out yeah can i tell you please do so initially when millie uh, was doing interviews for hereditary she was really excited to join what she called the cool club of kids that freak people out um she felt really positive about it and she was really had a lot of pride in being that character but then she got a lot of bullying from people because of the way she looked Mm. and she's actually quite a a good tiktoker um (laughs) she's got a lot of of content um and she's got just really good makeup but um she does a tiktok where she says being in a movie and playing a character where they purposely made you look your worst and then millions of people seeing it and the song in the background is about I think this is going to fuck me up. I don't know the song. And then she wrote underneath it, um, I just remember when the trailer came out and one of the top three comments was about how ugly I looked, ha, 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 in the caption. So I think she's changed her tune about how positive she feels about the film. Mm. And that's really, I really feel for her because I would have probably been excited too if I was her and... You know, you have a lot of faith in your director and obviously it's a huge film, so it's it's going to do lots of good things as well. And then realising that people are fucking shit on the internet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe it sounds like she's questioning, was I actually just being exploited for this yeah. rather than being just known for my great acting? Yeah. Um, so I really hope... It sounds like she's in some some upcoming stuff, which is good, and I hope that she's okay. Yeah, that makes me feel a bit dirty. Yeah, so I think she would agree with our criticisms. <laughs> Just on that note with um, the fairies, I feel like there's a harmful message 
that the disability, whatever it might be for Charlie, the character, is something to be blamed for and not want and that there's some blame associated with it because I guess what we find out in the end is, you know, obviously Charlie's a very quirky kid and at the beginning of the film we think, oh, she's just a quirky kid, but then we find out that um, she is she is a vessel for payment, um, possessed by payment. So I guess the message is, you know, if your child has a disorder, then <laughs> it's just the devil. It's not your fault. You couldn't do anything about it. And 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 I think there's an implication that her appearance is like normal kid plus the effect of a demon. Yeah. You know, like somehow fucking with her cells so that they look weird. Yeah. So yeah, it's all a bit it's all a bit in poor taste and I don't think it needed to be done. It absolutely didn't need to be done. I'm glad that Millie Shapiro is is known to us now because she's a very good actress, but it really didn't need um, to create this. It, the trope did not need to be repeated. Yeah, and and it, it comes from a long line of, you know, you think of The Hills Have Eyes. Yes. That's the first one that really comes to mind. There's a lot of movies with creepy kids that don't have any physical um, differences to uh, to other kids. So, mm. you know. As in the movie Us, with the little yeah. monster kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking like The Omen. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty creepy. Um, and what about stereotypes about mental type stuff? Well, we kind of touched on the fact that mental illness could also be seen as possession, but it is a negative stereotype that mental illness is actually a supernatural thing and a horror, uh, you know, something to be feared, something that's magical, um, that it's a curse or a punishment, especially those um, less common and more severe mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, DID, psychosis, um, you know, equating that to being monstrous or being a witch mm. is bad. I don't think I need to tell you why that's bad. <laughs> but I, I, one of the quotes that you were saying before was when we were talking about anaphylaxis was that the film deals a lot with people who have lost Control, control of their yeah. Bodies. Um, and I think that the idea of mental illness being you losing control of your mind, mm. which is very much what we believe in, I guess, Western culture mm. to be. We believe our mind is us. Yes. So it's a really powerful way of saying, you, you know, you lose it's a really sense scary of yourself. thought to lose control of sort of who you are. Mm. And, it, you know, it, it is a scary experience for mm. people who go through that and, you know, in the peaks of my anxiety, you feel it's the loss of control that, that makes you feel so distressed because yeah. you feel like you're not in control um, and that dis dissociative um, part of anxiety is really scary too when you like, what is going on around me and where, who am I actually and where am I? However, you know, if he hadn't used the supernatural stuff, maybe that would have been a little less on the old nose. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're probably right. I think again, it probably it, it's similar to the way he's handled disability, really, mm. where he's um, just attributed it to malevolent supernatural yeah. forces, and that makes it a little bit yucky. But then it's also a horror film, mm. and 
I'm not apologising for these pretty clear-cut mistakes that he's made, but I guess you do need to kind of check your your DSM at the door when you, you yeah. go into a movie like Hereditary. And but I think it's it's just a it's not just Ariaster's fault. It's the the entire Hollywood industry's fault that that is what. Mm. Has happened with horror. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we go into the movie with certain expectations. Mm. I also, I could talk about this for like two hours, but I think that horror movies, people are always wanting to put these really serious meanings to their horror films, like The Descent is about drug abuse, or I don't know, I just made that up. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't remember anyone saying that. <laughs> but I think really people who make horror movies are just trying to make fucked up, scary movies. And then they sometimes try to put a narrative into it. A little bit of a moral into it. Um, And that's interesting because Ari did the opposite of that. Yeah. It had a narrative and then he turned it into a horror movie. I still I still kinda have my doubts. Because a movie that ends... It's so horrible. (laughs) In the matriarch soaring her head off. (laughs) It just seems to me that that we shouldn't take the message on grief so seriously. (laughs) But think about it, losing control of your mind, cut head off. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's a it's an extended metaphor. It's a don't undermine our metaphorical vision. I did also read about how in other religious cultures, beheading is kind of a symbol of you separating, like removing your ego and just serving others. And I think it came from, I think one of the examples they gave was a Hindu, some incarnation of a Hindu god who cuts their own head off to feed the Mm. world with their blood or something like that. Mm. And it's a kind of a metaphor about sacrifice and Mm. how you need to sort of give up sort of self-abnegate to... Which means it's anyway. also talking about being a mother. Well, well. Well. I'd, I, yeah, I can see that. But I also feel like, in, going back to, in terms of stereotypes, Annie sort of portrays a very stereotypical mother that we all end up thinking is a bad mum by the end of it. Mm. When I think she's probably just trying to do her best. Yeah. And there's... You know, mum's always given a bad rap all the time. I think in a in a grief movie, like loss of a child movie, we're expecting mum to really lose the plot. Yeah. And that's a probably a nasty stereotype. Yeah. Because, yeah, like if, God forbid, Casper died. Don't even talk about it. I'd yeah. be on the floor. We'd both be on the floor yeah. screaming. We'd need somebody to, to <laughs> midwife our grief. <laughs> Yeah, his his grandparents can do (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I think on that note too, there's the stereotype of mum being driven mad by grief Mm. and um, believing the supernatural stuff that no one else sort of believes. And then the husband is so gaslighty. He's the, you are going over the top, Annie, and no, I'm not going to believe this rubbish that you're talking about. Um, and it's such a common trope in horror films where mm. the mum or the, the wife, the woman, mm. is seeing these supernatural things happen and the, the partner, husband, always a male, is like, 
just don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Mm. Um, Alec with Pen on Instagram does a really good series on the possessed house (laughs) with the wife who knows it's haunted and the husband that's like, I don't see any ghosts here as he's literally being decapitated or (laughs) around the room. Yeah. Um, Levitating. It's very funny. So, um, but that is literally what happens. <laughs> um, and also the fact that Peter is a teenage boy with very little to say, um, just just constantly traumatized by everything that's happening, which is kind of like, you know, he's an empty vessel. Like he doesn't, he's really there to be in a vessel for payment, mm. um, literally. And it's kind of a little bit of a teenage stereotype where they don't really have any substance or or, um, worth or agency of themselves. They're just an empty vessel for the devil, which is very satanic panicky. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I hadn't thought Mm. about that. But we don't learn much about Peter really beyond the fact that he smokes weed and... Has a crush on a girl. No, I don't even remember that. He has a crush on a girl. Mm. I just want to say, just like a bit of devil's advocate type stuff, Mm. I guess in the case of Annie, she has this intense family history. She's genetically predisposed to serious mental illness, and we know that adverse life events put you at risk of developing a disorder. Aces. So she could very, this could be the beginning of her... Descent into psychotic... Depression or schizophrenia. (laughs) But it could be the start of some sort of episode of of something. Mm. Um, Which is probably what the movie would have been if it wasn't a horror film. Yeah. Mm. I totally, 100% I'm on board with what you're saying, but just from like a clinical psychiatry point of view. All the, the, it's a perfect storm for for a a psychotic episode to present itself. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe the risk factors are there. The driven mad by grief may be to some extent a true stereotype. Looking at helpful or harmful, is there anything helpful in this movie? It's a pretty realistic nuts and bolts grief story. Yeah. And I feel like it's a very visceral uh, experience of grief Mm. that I think people could relate to if they'd gone through it and would be very triggering. Probably needs a trigger warning for anyone who has had a child die. It's horrific. Actually, I was thinking this is kind of just an aside, but the first time I saw it, like, I knew it was horrific what had happened, but watching it as a parent yeah, it really it really hits, it hits so much harder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, differently. I think it is positive that there's a good depiction of, uh, accurate depiction of anaphylaxis as quite a serious thing rather than a funny thing. So that is positive. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anaphylaxis is fucked. Yeah. (laughs) And I'd never thought about it, but really it is just a joke. It's just fodder for laughs in movies. But yeah, no, it's really bad. And she, you know, frankly, she probably would have died. Yeah, she probably um, would have. She didn't have an EpiPen. Without that pole. But, uh, you know, you'd rather her not be decapitated if she was going to die. If you... It would be quick death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She probably it's a red herring, death. though. And something else that I was kind of thinking, but I didn't fully flesh my thoughts out, but I always come back to that thing we read for me before you. Oh. Um, 
the the disability theorist who said that all movies about disability are the same movie mm. where there's somebody with a disability and the able-bodied person, you know, redeems himself by helping the person with a disability. <laughs> you know, they learn their lesson yeah. or whatever via that. <laughs> this um, does not happen in this movie. <laughs> no, is that good? But then, but then I was like, it's not really a movie. It's not a movie about disability, disability though. Yeah. And what are most grief movies like? <laughs> not, not what happens in this movie. End with acceptance. Yeah, or on the path to acceptance. Yeah, or, this... I'm fixed. I'm not grieving anymore. Yeah, let's go live my life. Yeah, um, this is the first grief movie to end in um, auto decapitation. <laughs> Congratulations! If anyone Ryan. finds one, otherwise, let us know. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see <laughs> more. <laughs> I can't think of anything else that's helpful apart from that. It's uh, I, despite being disgusting, it's it's a well made piece of film. Look, I, I I love this movie, but it's difficult for our purposes to say that it's very helpful. It's not helpful at all. <laughs> you know, it, I think having discussions about grief and movies about grief that is quite uh, what's the word that is quite palpable. I don't know, is good, but. If you want to watch a movie about grief that will help you process grief, it is not this movie. Oh, no. Run a mile. (laughs) Watch um, just some Noah Baumbach or something instead. So we've talked about lots of harmful things, but let's just just, um, recap. Yeah. All the tropes are bad. Yeah, the disability as, as fuel for horror, no thanks. Also, like, their message is you can't escape your family's mental illness and it will kill you and create a demon. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's harmful. You will die. It's pretty harmful. Yeah. It's also very important to note that it's not actually true that mental illness is absolutely heritable. No. Um, there's a lot that goes on that might determine whether you go on to experience what your parents experienced. Um, it's genes and environment, which they call epigenetics. Well, not exactly. It's a combination Explain of Explain epigenetics. No, don't. We don't even need have time for that. I mean, like, what? I think what they tend to find is that the heritability of, of mental illnesses tends to be, like, under 50%. I would say, like, the ballpark for most would be 30%. Mm. And then the rest of it is, like, huh? Yeah. Adverse life events. Yeah. Environment, drugs, that sort of thing stresses in general yeah and how you know what sort of parenting you experience as well yeah yeah so don't listen to that message no uh but also if you have mental illness it's not the fucking end of the world he taught his shtick is inevitability yes people who get on a conveyor belt to their doom and they don't know what's going on but we kind of do and it's it makes for good movie um, but not good mental health promotion. <laughs> but I wonder if that's the message, though, or that the signs are there for them to see where things are heading, that if they noticed, they could do something about, mm. but they chose mm. not to because I can't remember what the play is. You might remember it, uh, but in I, English. I, like... I wanted to talk about this. Okay, yeah. come on, come on. There, there's, oh, there... we, we're getting to it. You know how we talk about giving your character a therapist is kind of like a shortcut to just getting to their subtext. Mm-hmm. Yeah. F- scenes 
where a teacher delivers a lesson <laughs> is, is that, but See, even more. Donnie Darko. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're writing a movie Lazy. and there's a school teacher scene, you're not just going to go to like <laughs> fucking algebra basics, fifth edition and like copy paste a lesson into your screenplay. You're going to find something that speaks to the heart of your film. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I think there's three classroom scenes and one of them talks about um, Heracles seeing the signs of his impending demise and ignoring them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them's about they just mention in passing the Great Depression or the Great Crash, and I think it's just after the crash that kills Charlie. Yes, the Great Crash. Um, and then I can't remember the third one, but it's it's equally like, oh, here we go. Yeah, mm. so it's, it's they're talking about uh, a death of some literary character um, which is arranged by the gods and the teacher says that the, the punishment creates wisdom. Mm. These are pretty intellectual classes, by the way. Like, Yeah, how old are I work in schools and I can't imagine them having this discussion. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, it's, it's, it, if you read it in the way that it's like, you need to recognise the signs that things are going badly and get help. That's not a bad message. That's a health promotion message. Mm, <laughs> don't think anyone's getting that from this movie. <laughs> no. uh, yeah, no, it's not Dr Melfi. And and the other filmy thing. Yeah. It's filmy psyche stuff. Oh, yeah. Like the the set design is fascinating. It's Pretty good. So there's this whole thing about the the gothic horror, mm-hmm. uh, um, and and people, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and those bozos mm-hmm. developed this notion of of the house as a reflection of the psyche of the person living there. Mm. Um, and then there's there's these really famous movies like The Haunting um, and The Shining, where they have these meticulously designed sets mm-hmm. um this came i was reading about this in the guardian I'll, I'll find the link but apparently people have gone through the shining and tried to construct what the hotel would have actually looked like mm. and it just doesn't make sense <laughs> like you can't actually construct a building that links together the way it does yeah in the movie and and i think that's probably what's going on here they it's an architect designed house it, it wasn't a real house it's a set mm. um and it works really well it it totally dwarfs the characters all the time mm. um he he always has a lot of space above their heads yes and it kind of reinforces that inevitability these are small powerless people you know at the mercy of bigger yes bigger forces, forces. yeah it's um, always very dark too it's very dark light. There's a few things, you know, I was mentioning before that they're really concerned about take your shoes off before mm. you come inside. And then as things go to shit, they, they forget about that yeah. towards the end of the film. They're, so we can assume it's getting colder as well? Well, and they're tracking, they're tracking the outside world <gasps> into their little space, Ooh. which, you know, they're tracking the payment residues. Yeah. And then on the flip side of the hugeness of the house is the miniatures, mm. which... Again, if you want a shortcut to your characters in a world, make them an artist <laughs> and <laughs> make them make miniatures of shit. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I just felt that that was a nice metaphor of 
Annie feeling like life is just so totally out of control. The only way she can control it is to miniaturize it. Mm. And so build, then it's easier it to manage. And then it's static. It's yeah. there and she can change it. So therapeutic. It's, um, yeah, it's clever. I love it. So is that helpful or humble? Who knows? <laughs> oh, I have to say what is, one thing that's very harmful is the cult is very sexist. Payman has to enter a male body. It cannot be a female body. Terrible. Terrible. I... Why can't a woman be Payman? Well, I actually read an article about Payman. Oh. Like the real Payman. I avoided that as much as I could. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of creepy. It's like a Den of Geek article. Um, apparently... They've actually got some good articles. Payman is um, typically portrayed as androgynous. Um, and I think the original... I want to say Mesopotamian character, whatever, of payment was female. So. Well, why? Okay, maybe it's Ari that's sexist then to the fact that he changed the character to need to be a man, a male body. I mean, there wouldn't be a movie if Payman was happy with Charlie. And also I think Ari Aster likes to, in a very cautious and... Um, not very definitive way. Comment on social things. So he's so probably he's saying a comment. demons prefer men. <laughs> <laughs> men are demons. Ooh, yeah. Um, but you know the movie's about grief. So. <laughs> I want to end on the the end credit song. Mm. Um, as as we'll talk about it in our next episode, Ari Aster likes to put a song in the credits that sounds quite pleasant Mm. to sort of break the tension, but it always has a meaning behind it. Mm. And the song is Judy Collins' version of Both Sides Now, which was also done by Joni Mitchell in Love Actually. And it's, you know, there's an article overanalyzing every part of this film and there was one about this song and it suggests that during the film's, like, Climax. Peter gets to see with his own eyes what had been manipulating his mother all those years, which is now that Peter can see from his mum's point of view that actually there's her mum was a witch and it was all demon possession. And and I think it's also alluding to the fact that we could see it as demon possession and and supernatural stuff, or we could see it as mental illness. So it's very clever. And the song also contains the line, tears and fears and feeling proud to say I love you right out loud which could suggest that Peter finally understood that his mother actually did care for him and now he's able to return those feelings in spite of all he'd been put through. Mm. So that's great, but Peter's dead now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I I definitely think that that song was very carefully chosen. Yeah, Um, and it's... um, And it's also hilarious. Isn't it? Like, oh, we've just seen this you know the last few minutes are the worst part of the film yeah. and then la, 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 la. <laughs> oh we could talk another four hours at least but let's just quickly go through our final scores yep lived experience i don't think he gets any points just I because i think millie chaperon obviously yeah, but I mean, I don't, I don't, but in in context of the film, no, no, not really. yeah. yeah. So no points. Accuracy? Well, it's a horror film, so, so it's should, not gonna. We should be kind, or <laughs> well, I think its depiction of grief is pretty good. Yeah, and, and I think anaphylaxis. It... Yes, 
And I think it's depiction of that fear of your past and your his your family history catching up with you, I guess. Yeah. Is pretty accurate. Yeah, there's there's nice dynamics, the family dynamics we were talking about. Okay, we might give it a point for that. Yeah, point. Um, stereotypes, I don't think it gets any points. Nah, there's a lot. Too many. Yeah, just the disability stuff is, is pretty rank. And, oh, so it's the and, mental illness. And the mental illness stuff. And I think it's more harmful than helpful. It is. But it's a good movie. Yeah. Are we <laughs> Let's allowed? watch it again. I do kind of want to watch it. Um, are we allowed to like it now that we've... Just picked it apart completely. Well, I think the purpose of this podcast isn't to tell people you're not allowed to like a movie, except music and me before you. You're not allowed to like them. Um, I think it's like going into a movie and just keeping these things in mind and being aware of the problems that movies we like can have with them. Seeing the signs... So that you don't end up doomed to become an ableist. (laughs) It's looking at movies through this lens. It's to prevent us from absorbing the messages that could be harmful or could create stereotypical views of things. It's keeping the bastards to account. (laughs) And also you go out and you make movies that That show different disability and mental illness stories that are empowering and that break the Or not necessarily empowering, but just reflective of the truth. Mm. They don't have to be inspiration porn. Yeah. They can just be there, which is what I said this before, which is what I love about when you see a movie where there's a person with a disability in it and it's not a plot point. They're just there. Mm. Like in Mare of Easttown where one of the characters has Down syndrome and no one even talks about it. It's Mm. just, it's, it's just there. It might Mm. as well not be there. That is good. This has been a very fun discussion. I was looking forward to it. And I look forward to our next episode, which we'll be focusing on. The Wicker Man 2. <laughs> Midsummer Returns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so keep an ear out because that one will be dropping shortly. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. See ya. So what's been happening, Michael, in your world? Hang on. Have I said that I'm here? Yeah, I just... My phone ring.